0: It's not as if she were a, a maniac, a raving thing. She just goes a little mad sometimes. We all go a little mad sometimes. <laughs> Haven't you? Here's a Japanese sign.
1: Hello and welcome to the Good Friends of Jackson Elias, a regular podcast about Call of Cthulhu, horror films, and horror gaming in general. I'm Paul
2: Fricker. I'm Scott Dalwood,
1: And I'm Matt Sanderson. In this episode, we're taking out a room at the Bates Motel and talking about Alfred Hitchcock's 1960 horror classic, Psycho.
2: But before we get into all that good stuff, what is going on?
3: Well, I hear we're only days away from a certain gathering now. A weekend gathering, one might say.
2: Yes, a weekend with good friends is approaching fast. In fact, it will be this coming weekend if you're listening to this episode as it goes out. And if you're listening to this episode later, you've missed it. But a weekend with Good Friends, which is the online gaming convention organized by our lovely listeners that takes place in the Good Friends Discord server, will be taking place between the 1st and the 3rd of March 2024. Player signups for the scheduled games have closed. But that said, there will probably be dropouts and people who can't make it throughout the weekend. So do keep an eye on the server to see whether any spots come up in any of those games. Also, people will almost certainly be running pickup games throughout the weekend. So don't despair. You can probably get into a game one way or another and there will also be panels running throughout the weekend so if you'd like to listen to people talk about role-playing games you can do that too also
1: this month february sees the release of chaosium's arkham book a revised version of the classic arkham book return to the haunted city by mike mason keith herber and brett kramer we're recording this a little in advance so hopefully by the time this comes out the book may already be out but if it's not out yet then it's imminent look for it it's got a lovely cover yeah a really nice cover actually with uh, one of the churches silhouetted against the moon with a couple of figures facing off against
2: what i can only assume to be some monstrous ghouls good to see brett kramer involved with that with all the work he's Mm. done on lovecraft country through the arkham gazette over the years If people
1: are interested, that is something we could potentially devote a whole
2: episode to, I think.
1: There's a lot of interest in Arkham. Now on to our main
3: topic, Psycho. Building on our episode about psychological horror, we thought it might be helpful to discuss one of the key works of the subgenre. In the 65 years since the book's publication, Robert Bloch's Psycho, and especially Alfred Hitchcock's film adaptation, have shaped that strange no-man's land between horror and crime fiction. As ever,
1: we'll dig into the film in detail,
3: looking for gaming inspiration.
1: I think it's important to say here, if you've never seen the film... This is one I would definitely go and watch before we spoil it. Yeah. Because there are things that go on in it. I mean, it's kind of like one of those things that is taken, like everybody knows Yeah. Uh, the twists in it. But yeah, if you don't know, then I strongly recommend you go and watch it before we tell you.
2: Yeah, it's become such a part of popular culture and been parodied and pastiched so many times. It's difficult to imagine that there's anyone out there who hasn't been spoiled about it. But if you are one of those rare few, yeah, then do follow Paul's advice.
3: And for God's sake, don't watch the Gus Van Sant version. Watch the black and white Hitchcock one. That's the one you want to see.
1: I'd forgotten the other version. I've not, not seen it. No, neither have I. You've seen it, Matt.
3: Yeah, it's almost a shot-for-shot remake of the original. It's why bother making a remake just in colour with different actors for almost no purpose and maybe just an added bit of gore. That's it. Money, Matt.
2: Money. Yeah. (laughs) And part of it is simply that some people refuse to watch black and white films. It seems daft, but I've certainly met people who just will not watch a film if it's black and white.
1: Well, I think if you are one of those and you're not keen on older films in black and white, then this is a standout example of one that is most excellently done in black and white.
2: I didn't realise until I was doing a bit of research ahead of this why it was made in black and white. I'd always assumed it was to tone down the gore and make it more palatable and so on, and that may have been an element But a big part of it was that Hitchcock had trouble getting the backing of the studio on this and had to do it on the cheap. And so he basically used the production crew from his television programme, Alfred Hitchcock Presents at the time, to do it. Mm. And they shot in black and white, so the film was in black and white. Yeah, it works very well. Mm.
1: So Alfred Hitchcock directed Psycho in 1960. Based on the 1959 novel, wow, that's I hadn't realised it was only the year before, by Robert Bloch of other mythos fiction fame. It came at a time when Hitchcock was uncertain of his future in the film industry, curiously, and was looking for a project that would grab the public's attention. Bloch had also been at a low point when he wrote the novel, wondering whether his best writing years were behind him.
2: I read Bloch's autobiography in preparation for this, uh, Once Around the Block, and he talks about how, I think he was like 40 or 41 when he wrote this, and he'd been writing since he was a teenager. This was like 25 years into yeah. his career, and he just thought that, yeah, he he'd, he was over the hill now. Hmm. If I remember
3: right, now, I'm probably going to butcher the name here. There is a film that's done about the making of Psycho, if I remember right. It's um stars. Oh, yeah. What's his name? we played Hannibal Lecter. Anthony Hopkins. Yeah, he plays Hitchcock. And if I remember right, there is oh. a key point in there about one of the things that Hitchcock did was that he pretty much bought out all the copies of the book while they were pretty much still on the shelf, so that no one in Hollywood had a clue about what the book was about, <laughs> what the twist was, what the big reveal was in this, so that it came as a complete surprise when anyone went to the cinema to see it for the first time.
1: Oh, that's very clever, because they make it a bestseller, but also nobody's read it.
3: Yeah, <laughs> but then it was—it must have been so close to the point when, say, the original novel came out for them to be able to do that. So, yeah, making it that only mm. a year after makes perfect sense.
2: A key inspiration for Block's novel was the notorious murderer Ed Gein. Block was living in Wisconsin in 1957 when Gein's crimes were uncovered, and he lived like 30 miles away from Gein's hometown of Plainfield. Mm. Even so, Block didn't specifically draw too many elements or too many details from the Gein case, but just used it to inform Psycho and the character of Norman Bates.
3: He does name-check Gein in the book, because I did read the Mm. Psycho novel before this, and it's it's only Mm. a passing reference right towards the end with the whole media circus surrounding the the last part, basically the epilogue. But yeah, Gein is name-checked.
2: But it's far more than that, in that there there are definitely elements of Gein in Norman Bates. Hmm.
3: While Norman Bates is a less extreme character than Gein, he shares Gein's unhealthy relationship with his mother, interest in taxidermy, and propensity for digging up bodies. Mild spoiler there.
2: It's difficult to discuss the background of the book and and so on at this stage without mild spoilers, so Mm. we gave you a spoiler warning up front. (laughs) You're going to get spoilers. There was all sorts of speculation at the time about Gein's gender identity, whether or not he was transgender, because he had adopted aspects of a female persona, apparently, or at least according to the psychiatrists, to the extent of wearing masks and a corset made from the skin of women, which much more inspired the character of Buffalo Bill from Mm. Silence of the Lambs than... But. There's not really any indication from the psychiatrist's finding at the time that he was trans in any way, and it's, it's been heavily disputed since then. But Bloch seized on this aspect of it, and in the book, much more in the film, incorporates that into Norman's personality. He has him being a cross-dresser, even before he adopts his mother's personality. And this comes up again in the sequel in Psycho 2. This, more than anything else, is the thing that I dislike about Psycho. Don't get me wrong, I think Psycho is a great piece of writing. I think as a a thriller, it is meticulously constructed. I think it's a very clever piece of thriller writing. But... In a lot of ways, it's ground zero for what I think is a pretty dangerous and toxic trope in horror, which is this cross-dressing or transgender killer uh, trope, which I, I don't think necessarily originated with Psycho. The earliest example I could think of was a book from 1934 called Hell Said the Duchess. But I think it's probably what implanted this trope into a lot of people's minds, into the popular consciousness. And we've certainly seen it in any number of, of horror films and books since then. I mentioned Silence of the Lambs, but there was also William Castle's Homicidal from 1961. There was uh, Brian De Palma's Dressed to Kill in 1980. That was Sleepaway Camp. There's a film I saw recently and hated called Crystal Eyes. I mean, even J.K. Rowling writing Trouble Blood recently. This cross-dressing killer persona or trope is just everywhere. and I think it's quite a dangerous one in that it feeds into that narrative that you see a lot these days about particularly trans women being predators invading female spaces, which is used as the basis for a lot of anti-trans legislation. It's inspired a lot of hate crimes. And while I think the film, as we'll discuss when we come to the ending of it, does go some way towards distancing itself from that interpretation. It is there in Bloch's work and even with the little bit of distancing at the very end in the film, it certainly feeds into that narrative and it makes the whole thing a bit of an uncomfortable watch for me sometimes. Block wanted to tell a story about a human monster living
1: unobserved on the outskirts of a community. The hotel setting was key, providing Norman with easy access to victims.
3: The film is a relatively faithful retelling of Bloch's novel, adapted by radio writer Joseph Stefano. While Hitchcock wasn't shy about deviating from source material, Block's sparse, meticulous story lent itself perfectly to the screen. And, yeah, having read it, I would say this is a good 95% faithful adaptation. There's very little that deviates from it at all.
2: Hmm. The biggest change, I'd say, is the character of Norman Bates himself. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Norman Bates in the book is very different. The casting of Anthony Perkins, I think, fundamentally changed who the character is. The version we see in the film here is superficially boyish and affable and almost naive. And it's only over time that we gradually see the darker depths that he's hiding. Bates in the book is sleazy. He's middle-aged, he's overweight, he wears glasses. Those are superficial things, but in terms of his personality, he's much more... Obsessed with pornography and obsessed with the occult as well. He's a much less, as I said, superficially likable person. Block doesn't create this sort of dissonance between his first impression and, and what he really is.
1: So, a middle aged, overweight bloke wears glasses, obsessed with the occult.
2: Hmm. Yeah, I know. Wrongen,
1: obviously. Mm-hmm. Yeah, clearly a wrongen. Block was happy with the adaptation, even if he thought the ending was over-explained. When Hitchcock asked his opinion, Block told him, I think this is either going to be your greatest success or your biggest bomb. Block did grow increasingly frustrated, however, when critics credited Hitchcock with the story. And I would think probably this is... Is this Hitchcock's biggest success? I mean, it's probably pretty
2: much his best-known film, I would have thought. It's difficult to say because he had a number of very, very successful films before this. Yeah. But yeah, it's probably the film he's best remembered for.
1: Yeah, I would have said so. because I mean, there's other standout ones, Birds and North by Northwest and so on. But this is like, it feels like the
2: iconic film, really. And it's interesting as well. I mean, we touched on a few moments ago how this was such a faithful adaptation. I mean, Hitchcock when he made films, tended to make them his own and was fairly free with the adaptation. So when you mentioned the birds there, I read Daphne mm. du Maurier's original Develop recently and it's nothing like the film, nothing like it. There's There are birds in it, that's about it. The 39 Steps as well, I read that last year. Of course. And yes, again, absolutely nothing like the film, nothing like it. So it's interesting to see how faithfully it was the Bloch's novel here.
1: Yeah. Well, let's dig in and take a look at the story of Psycho.
3: We open with Marion Crane, played by Janet Leigh, in a cheap hotel with her boyfriend, Sam Loomis, played by John Gavin. They have just had a quick assignation during Marion's lunch hour and are now discussing their future. Marion wants to marry Sam and make their relationship respectable. Sam is in serious debt, however, and wants to be clear of it before they wed. This will take a couple of years,
2: Yeah, because he makes some comment about how he's living in the back room of his shop and doesn't want her to live there with him. And she's a bit more accepting of this, but that's a hard line for him. Mm -hmm. Marion returns to her office after this, where her boss, Mr. Lowry, has just been dealing with a customer, Mr. Cassidy, this wealthy client who's purchasing a house for his daughter. Cassidy has turned up with $40,000 in cash to pay for this house. I ran this through an inflation calculator just to see what it's worth in today's money. And that's like $410,000 in in today's money. So this is a a big chunk of cash.
1: And just to jump back here, something we didn't mention was the title sequence oh, the yes. title sequence is really yeah. striking and the music i mean this film is known for its score and particularly like in the shower scene but the the opening music is is really jarring
2: yeah i
1: mean in a good way but it's like really striking and quite simple
2: graphics but quite striking graphics at the same time the bass did the titles and he was legendary for doing title mm. sequences that score by bernard herman is amazing and <laughs> it almost amuses me i take it you noticed when you watched reanimator that the title sequence from reanimator is just different enough that they could probably avoid uh, a lawsuit but it is the theme from psycho larry asked marianne to take the cash across
1: to the bank and place it in the safety deposit box Simple. Marion tells Larry that she has a headache and will head home after making the deposit. Mm. (laughs) Hmm. Instead, she takes the cash home, packs a suitcase and calls her boyfriend. No, she doesn't call her boyfriend. Mm. She just uh, packs a suitcase and heads out of town. So even here, I think the film is not doing the obvious. It's not the two of them running off together. Larry spots her on a crosswalk in the centre of town yeah, it's just a notable little thing where, where her boss spots her in the car when apparently she's at home with a headache.
3: The following morning, Barry is awoken by a highway patrolman as she's sleeping in her parked car. Her nervousness and desperation to get away arouses the patrolman's suspicions. He follows her for a while.
2: This is something that they really did change for the film. This patrolman, who I think is mentioned in passing in the book, becomes... Not quite a major character, but you know, he is this looming presence at this stage. He's like, when we were discussing psychological horror before and external manifestations of internal states. this is like the external manifestation of Marion's guilt, and just docking her down the highway.
3: I don't even recall the, the fact that there was a patrolman mentioned, because this whole section, the whole opening with Marion before, renamed in the book, she's Mary in the book, gets mm. to the hotel is a grand total of eight pages. Yeah. So you can tell this is definitely expanded upon for a film.
2: Yeah, and I think that works because they are very much establishing the character of Marion here, which, considering what's going to happen about halfway through the film, is, is really important mm-hmm. for that sort of misdirect and that, that moment of vertigo as everything changes. Yeah, although saying establishing her character, I
3: think she has more character in the book. Because it goes into more detail about the relationship she has with her mother, uh, her sister as well, how she met Sam Loomis, where Sam is based in relation to her, etc. That's that's all much more established in the book itself. In the film, it seems almost like a, not quite an afterthought, but it definitely doesn't get as much attention, which I thought was a bit diminishing the, the fact of what happens to her so, so soon into the film.
2: Well, I think those are things that it's very difficult to do succinctly in a film. And if they'd done that, it would have been a much longer film and a a very different film. But the way it's established here is much more suited to cinematic storytelling. And I think it has the same basic effect of making us feel for her as a character and establishing her as a character, but does it in a much more cinematic way.
1: Marion stops at a used car dealer, trading her car for one with Californian plates. This again arouses suspicion as she pressures the dealer into a quick sale. She becomes even more anxious when the patrolman parks across the street and watches, but she eventually drives off in her new car, with the patrolman and staff looking on concerned.
2: I think in some ways this is both a very tense scene and and also one of the few missteps in the film in that the emphasis on that patrolman and his presence across the street watching the whole thing and then the fact that he just watches her drive off at the end it just felt very contrived to me and it it worked on an, an emotional level but it didn't work on a literal level for me if that makes sense.
3: Driving into the night, Marion obsessively runs through everyone's likely reactions to her crime. Heavy rain reduces visibility, so Marion pulls into the Bates Motel. The boyish manager, Norman Bates, played by Anthony Perkins, comes down from the house. He explains that the motel is empty, as usual, since the new highway opened. Marion registers under a fake name.
2: Norman offers to save Marion the 15-mile drive to the diner in Fairvale by making a sandwich for her, it didn't register at first that oh, obviously Fairvale is where she she's headed that's where Sam's hardware store is the whole film the whole story could have been short-circuited as she just driven on for those additional 15 miles but then we wouldn't have the film as Marion unpacks her suitcase she hides the $40,000 in a newspaper which she puts on the nightstand and she opens the window and hears Norman and his mother arguing up in the house. Norman's mother is berating him, believing that Marion wants to seduce Norman and refuses to let Marion into the house to have dinner. Embarrassed, Norman
1: returns soon with the sandwiches and says his mother isn't quite herself today. <laughs> in brackets, yes. <laughs> too embarrassed to enter marion's room norman suggests that they could eat in the office Uh, and then he sort of says oh but the office you know it's a bit formal we can go into the i've got a back parlor which is filled with stuffed birds as you do so he he talks about all these taxidermied birds and i think we get a bit of sympathy for him here Mm. although matt won't (laughs) because of matt's love of birds i mean i love birds too but he sort of makes the point that he wouldn't like to um kill or stuff like other animals But somehow birds are okay, which is a bit unkind to the birds, as I said. But it it kind of makes him a more sympathetic character, I think.
3: At least in the book, he has the decency just to stuff a squirrel. He doesn't stuff a bird. (laughs)
1: Okay. (laughs) Well, everybody's got their limits. uh,
3: Keeps it in the kitchen rather than his parlour.
1: Is that hygienic? I don't
3: know. Norman tells Marion about his lonely life, looking after his mother and practising taxidermy. As he talks about how everyone is stuck in their private trap, we can see Marion reconsidering her recent actions. And he does drop a great line here, a very quotable line, that I was really looking forward to coming up in the book, and it's not in there. A man's best friend is his mother. (laughs) Yes.
0: Is your time so empty? No. Well, I run the office and uh, tend the cabins and grounds and and do a little... uh, Errands for my mother—the ones she allows I might be capable of doing. Do you go out with friends? Well, a a boy's best friend is his mother.
2: Yeah, there are lots of little lines like that that they added to the dialogue in the film, which I think really work. I think that line works a lot better with film Norman than it would with book Norman, because that—that sort of boyishness about him. Norman explains that his mother is ill, and not just physically. She never quite recovered from the shock of losing her lover some ten years ago. Norman tells Marion a son is a poor substitute for a lover. When I was reading Bloch's autobiography, this was... I don't think he really complained about it, but it sort of hinted that this was one of the things that he didn't especially like about the adaptation, in that he didn't really imply an incestuous relationship at all in the book. But it's sort of hinted at in the film here and elsewhere. When Marion
1: suggests that his mother might be better off in a psychiatric institution... Norman grows angry, telling her what terrible places, madhouses, as he calls them, are, and that his mother is not a maniac or a raving thing. We all go a little mad sometimes, he explains. Yeah, this does seem to um, set him
2: off, this discussion. Not as in shouting angry, but you can just see the intensity there as he's speaking. Hmm.
3: All this convinces Marion that she needs to head back to Phoenix in the morning and return the money. She bids Norman goodnight and heads to her room. Norman removes a painting from the wall revealing a peephole and watches Marion disrobe. He grows agitated and then heads up to the
2: house. And I think this, again, works better with film Norman, because I guess if you if you didn't know anything about the film before watching it, this moment where you see him do that would be quite shocking, because it doesn't seem like something that someone as uh, superficially innocent as him would do. But book Norman, you can absolutely see doing that. Mm-hmm.
3: Book Norman goes a little bit more graphic as well. Mm. He ends up, Getting drunk, he definitely takes a fair degree of booze in his parlour and uh, proceeds to pleasure himself, if I remember right. Yeah, he definitely gets um, in a more interesting state.
2: So back in her room, Marion makes some calculations on a bit of scrap paper, working out her finances and whether she can repay the money that she stole and minus the money that she paid for the new car but she then tears up the piece of paper with all the calculations and flushes the pieces down the toilet then she gets ready to take a shower
1: so this is the the famous shower scene and i have to say this time watching it i think i was struck by the horror that she gets into the shower and draws the shower curtain and then just stands in front of the shower and just turns it on full blast who does that (laughs) <laughs> who doesn't like turn it on and stick their arm in or their foot in to see is it cold is it hot no she just turns it on full blast in her face now that may not be the worst thing that happens in this scene but to me that was like shocking shocking i tell you
3: <laughs> well, especially the, the location's only slightly move. i mean the book it's texas and now it's uh, now it's arizona
2: actually it's never stated in the book it makes some passing reference to dallas as somewhere that i think lila's visited but block very deliberately didn't say which state is all set in not in that or in any of the sequels i mean that was a deliberate choice on his part i am almost
3: 95 percent sure it actually sets it in fort worth
2: this is happening just outside fairvale mm. which fairvale is never given a state in the book
3: but, I mean, where, where we start off, because, say, we start in Phoenix, I mean, what I was getting to the point is I've been to both states and been in both those regions, I don't know how bloody hot it can get. So, being in a shower and just turning it on full blast, and even if it's cold, would still be a relief from all that temperature. So, whether it's hot or cold, I wouldn't give a shit. i will just get in and turn the thing on if I was in either of those places.
2: Fair enough. One thing that I was struck by this time around watching it is how little build-up there is to the shower scene. Mm. Because this scene, this one scene, I think changed horror cinema, is one of the most influential scenes in cinema, full stop. And... Now it's become shorthand for a moment of vulnerability for the characters. If in a horror film now you see a character getting ready for a shower, going into a shower, you know that this is shorthand for they are going to be either under threat or there's going to be some fake-out involving it. There's never going to be a shower scene just for the sake of it. It's always going to somehow refer back to this. But here, because there's no expectation of that, it just sort of happens. She gets undressed, she goes through into the bathroom, she gets into the shower, and for that first 30 seconds or so before the shadow appears behind the curtain, there's no incidental music, there's nothing about the cinematography that's there to heighten tension. It's just all very matter-of-fact.
1: There is a lot of very... uh careful cinematography in this film mm-hmm. not to show any anything explicit yeah you got a whole scene of her being stabbed in the shower and then afterwards her body on the floor being dragged a naked body being dragged from from one room to another mm-hmm. but some very clever uh, arrangement of bodies and and uh,
2: furniture and so on there was a video essay i saw which i will recommend it was it was recommended to me by james mullen and well Suggest anyone who's interested in Psycho watches it, a video essay by Matt Baum called "Psycho's Norman Bates and the Hidden Life of Anthony Perkins." It's much more about Anthony Perkins and his relationship with the role of Norman Bates, but Baum does make reference in passing to. Hitchcock being challenged by the censors over this scene, one of the censors saying, "Oh, we saw a nipple in this. You've got to cut that." Obviously, there wasn't a nipple in it, so Hitchcock just basically waited a, a few days, resubmitted exactly the same scene back to them, mm-hmm. and they said, "Oh, oh yeah, th- thank you. That's good now."
0: Yeah,
3: this is one of the points where the Gus Van Sant version is noticeably different, because when talking about that, now, the fact her naked body when she falls over the shower she has a lot more exposed wounds on her body when she does that. So uh-huh, that when okay. she, uh, when her body uh, lays in that manner, the wounds open up and they start to bleed a bit more. That's one of the more graphic bits that he put in here, which in retrospect, when you look back at this version, you go, well, she seems stabbed all these times. Where the hell are all these wounds on her? Where's Where's all the blood coming from? There's nothing.
2: Yeah, you don't see the knife enter her body at any stage. The only time you see the knife in conjunction with her, it's just sort of in front of her. Like you say, there are no wounds on her. The whole thing is very bloodless in a lot of ways. So you see the spatters of blood, which were actually chocolate syrup, in the the water. And you see Norman cleaning up the blood afterwards, but as far as killings go, it is a a fairly tame one by Bond standards, but deeply shocking by the standards of 1960.
1: Yeah, and you don't have to be shown it to see it, I think, as is testament to the uh, the cutting off the ear scene in Reservoir Dogs. You know, people think yeah. they see it cut off, but they don't. So I think they think they see, see her being stabbed, I'm sure. And I think it's important to say here in this scene as well, we're being quite open as to who the, the murderer is, but yeah. what we see here is from the, the viewer's perspective, Norman's mother turning yeah. up and doing the stabbing. And and we don't see very much of her, just a very brief frame or two. We did see her, but it's very
2: brief. It's interesting as well, contrasting this with uh, the description of the scene of the book, because <laughs> the scene of the book is one paragraph, pretty much, or at least the actual murder is is pretty basic. And it's also... I think a bit sillier in one way so it reads Mary started to scream and then the curtains parted further and a hand appeared holding a butcher knife it was the knife that a moment later cut off her scream and her head that decapitation I think just goes a bit too far the way it's it's said there i mean it just sounds like you know he slashes out with a knife and the head falls off which mm. i don't think is what block was aiming for but it it sounds a bit silly again from his autobiography he did have a thing about decapitation he, uh, He talks about being a child and being taken to the cinema back in the days of silent movies. And there was one film he saw, I can't remember which one it was, it was a Lon Chaney film, where someone is decapitated. And he talks about seeing this at the age of seven or eight or something like that, and it really imprinting on him to the extent where that image comes up over and over and again in his work that he's obsessed with decapitation because it frightened him so much and i think that's why he put it in here but i'm very glad they didn't do that in the film because i don't think it works it'd also
3: be a lot more of an expensive effect to achieve so that's probably why they do, probably the main reason why they <sighs> changed it <laughs> he must have loved the omen when he got got to see that a couple of uh decades a bit after this
2: block hated most horror films now we'll be talking about block next episode but yeah block i think pretty much hated any horror film that was made after 1920
1: we'll be back with more about norman after this short break there is rampant disease in the hooverville
2: someone get the dark the apocalypse players present bleak prospect by scott Dorwood sense of dizziness comes over me again
0: (sighs) my hand my hand is there anyone you would like to speak to his hand has
1: crumbled in yours (gasps) every time he moves another part of him sheds away and crumbles in your dream nancy they didn't have any faces part of a season of nameless horrors From the Apocalypse Players.
3: Here we go. (laughs) Allons-y!
4: What a wonderful evening!
2: I don't want to hear the song again. Well, there's blood spatter, right? Come to Paris, they said. It'll be romantic, they said. It wasn't a great idea. (laughs) I am sweating. I'm gorgeous. Flaking skin. The payment is blunt. I love this guy! Find us wherever you get your podcasts.
0: Do
3: you like obscure books of hidden knowledge? I know I do. The Blasphemous Tome is a Call of Cthulhu fanzine produced by the good friends of Jackson Elias. Everyone who backs us gets immediate access to a host of sanity-blasting issues of the Tome. Join us at patreon.com slash Elias.
1: And we're back with more about Psycho. We then hear Norman crying from the house. Mother! Oh God! Mother! Blood! Blood! He races down the hill and finds Marion's body. Shocked at first, apparently, but then gradually readying himself
2: to cover up the crime. There's a method to how he does this that... Seems to very subtly imply, which we see pretty much confirmed at the end of the film, that this isn't the first time he's had to do this. Over the next ten minutes, we watch Norman wrap Marion's body up in the shower curtain, mop up all the blood, including grabbing a towel and sponging it all off the floor. He then packs Marion's possessions into her suitcase puts her corpse in the suitcase in the boot of the car and then as an afterthought he notices the the newspaper which has got the stolen money in it on the nightstand puts that in the suitcase too and then he drives the car to a nearby swamp and pushes it into the mire yeah as i mentioned that's 10 minutes of screen time this film is an hour and 48 minutes so that is a sizable chunk of the film that is devoted to the aftermath of this, this murder, the, the immediate cleanup, which I think is pretty significant, particularly considering how brief the, the shower scene and the murder is. From a gaming point of view, I think that focus on the effects of violence and the aftermath of violence is, is certainly something that appeals to me. It's something that. I appreciate quite a lot, for example, in the films of Takeshi Kitano. Japanese director who's done a lot of gangster films. It's sort of his trademark that you have these moments of sickening violence of gunplay that you don't necessarily see in the film. Quite often he will just cut to the aftermath of someone standing there with the gun and body on the ground and so on. And just that frozen moment after. Or the violence and the bloodshed then deal with the the repercussions of that it's like the act of violence itself is is almost well not unimportant but not worth dwelling on compared to the effect that it has on the lives of the people around it and i just think that's a a fascinating approach and i sort of see that here with this scene as well
3: you say that it's a, well, I agree in this point, that it is a fairly significant chunk of screen time and that it's quite a uh, significant section. It's also given quite a degree of prominence in the book because the one thing that you don't get in the film version is Norman's internal monologue as he's going through mm-hmm. all this. And again, that takes up quite a few pages compared to like, so the eight pages of setting up Marion's back or Mary's background getting to the motel and then. Equally sizable chunk of text that's given over to what's going through Norman's head while he does
1: all this. We cut to the Loomis hardware store in Fairvale, a, very, a, a great change of scene suddenly. It's a few days later, and Marion's sister, Leela, played by Vera Miles, arrives, demanding to know where Marion is. Sam has no idea. As Leela starts to explain what happened, a gruff private investigator with the fabulous name of Arbogast comes in to the shop and says he has been hired to retrieve the money so this is our uh, our private investigator not really a cthulhu investigator but i mean he could be yeah comes in and uh he's hard on the trail so this is a good change of pace i think we're we're about halfway through the just over halfway through the film at this
2: point yeah and he's been training lila that's why he's turned up here because he's believed that she must know where her hmm. sister is but This is the point at which he chooses to reveal himself. Arbogast then visits every rooming
3: house and hotel in the area, looking for Marion, and he ends up at the Bates Motel. Norman tells Arbogast that no one has stayed there for weeks. He contradicts himself almost immediately, however, raising Arbogast's suspicions. Bad move.
2: Yeah, this is a repeating thing we see through the film that's, I think, much more emphasised than we see in the book which is these moments where people tell lies and try to fabricate uh, an alibi or an excuse or whatever and it quickly unravels and there's this mounting suspicion from the people around them. It's a very Hitchcock thing and I think it works very well in his hands here. In checking the guest register, Arbogast recognizes Marion's handwriting despite the fake name she used. Norman grows increasingly nervous as Arbogast presses him for details, as Arbogast believes Marion might still be hiding out at the motel.
0: See, I, now I'm starting to, to um, remember it. I'm making a mental picture of it in my mind. You know, if you make a mental picturization of something... That's right, that's right. Take your time. Um, she was, She was sitting back there. No, no, she was standing back there with a sandwich in her hand. And she said uh, she had to go to sleep early because she had a, a long tr- drive. Uh, ahead of her. Mm-hmm. Back where? Back uh, where she came from. No, you said before that she was uh, sitting back. Oh, I was uh, standing uh, back Yes, there. but back in my, uh, in my parlor there, uh, she was very hungry. and I made her a sandwich. And then she said uh, that she was tired and she. Uh, um, had to go st- right, right to bed. Oh, I see. Uh, how did she pay you? Cash, check, cash, cash. Huh? Mm-hmm and uh, after she left she uh, didn't come back Hmm. well why should she
1: (laughs) and i noticed earlier that it's a dip pen that is used to sign the register a nice little touch i mean i guess they were more common back then anyway but it kind of hints at the place being old and and so on
3: one of the things again that's more emphasized in the book how old the house is and again it doesn't Mm. so much come across in the film but the place is supposed to be very archaic that it's, it's very much a place out of time, that it almost feels like
1: it's a Victorian house. I think it gets that feel. It feels old.
2: Yeah, I mean, the architectural style is a classic American Victorian Gothic-style house.
1: Arbogast catches sight of the silhouette of Norman's mother in the, her bedroom window. He asks to speak to her, but Norman insists that she is too ill. Arbogast drives to a phone booth and tells Leela about his discoveries.
3: Arbogast, being the, uh, the great Cthulhu investigator that he is, decides he needs to question Mrs Bates and heads back to the motel, then the house behind after failing to find Norman in his office. As Arbogast goes upstairs, an old woman charges out of the bedroom and stabs him, sending him tumbling down the staircase, and then finishes him off. There's a great piece of cinematography, as you see. The, the camera follows him as he's falling almost comically down the stairs backwards.
1: Yeah, this is a fantastic scene. I think yeah. this this rivals the shower scene, really. It's, it's this weird looking down at the top of the stairs, like the landing at the top of the stairs, the cameras looking down on the top of their heads. He's kind of coming up the stairs and he doesn't see her come out of the bed. I mean, I'm saying her, Norman, come out of the bedroom. And she just, not so much charges, but just walks very assertively up to him with the knife raised and just stabs him. It's like, really rapid without being rushed. It's, and, and yeah, and then you, as you say, Matt, you see this great scene of him tumbling down, well, not tumbling, but falling backwards down the stairs. Great.
2: Well, and also that overhead view is a very neat way of, of not showing the character's faces mm. they come charging out of the bedroom. And it's something we see again a bit later in a follow-up scene where he uses exactly the same overhead mm. view. There are all sorts of really clever, subtle things like this throughout the film, which perhaps feel a little odd or stylized in the moment, but you realise later were there very much to disguise things that would have been obvious to the audience had it been shot in a normal way. When Arbogast fails to return to the hardware store, Sam drives off and checks the motel, but can't find anyone there. He and Lila then go to Al Chambers, the deputy sheriff, for help, visiting him at his home. And Chambers and his wife hear their story, but suggest that Arbogast is simply following another lead. And despite the late hour, Sam convinces Chambers to call the motel. Norman, however, just tells Chambers that Arbogast left hours ago. What puzzles
1: Chambers, however, is their mention of Norman's mother. We see his uh, reaction to this yes. is, is kind of quizzical when it's, when it's brought up, but they don't immediately explain he reveals though a bit later that mrs bates died in a murder stroke suicide 10 years ago poisoning her lover and then herself when sam insists he saw her sitting at the window chambers asks
0: well if the woman up there is mrs bates who's that woman buried out in green lawn cemetery
2: Uh, ah And I think, again, this is a good bit of writing because it tells us that something is very wrong but immediately mm. offers us a misdirect, a false explanation for it. Yeah. From a gaming point of view, I love doing stuff like that where you have those moments where the players or their characters start to realise that perhaps events aren't quite as they initially thought as they were initially presented. But here's this alternative explanation that neatly explains all that. Clearly, that must be it.
1: Yeah, everybody wants to come up with a solution and they'll grab onto the, the obvious one. If you feed yeah. it to them, they'll, you know, they'll grab, oh, that must, ah, I'm clever. I've I figured out what it is. But, you know, they haven't. <laughs> Back at the Bates house, we hear Norman and his mother
3: arguing about his plan to hide her in the fruit cellar. Norman insists, carrying her down despite her protests.
2: And this is the other overhead shot she might
3: suddenly in retrospect appear to be quite still as she is being carried along
2: (laughs) (laughs) yes
1: but this bit does reinforce the fact that she is there
2: then because we see her yes again very neat misdirect Hmm. the following day chambers tells lila and sam that he's checked the Bates house but there was no sign of an old woman there of course they're tenacious and frustrated, and they decide that they're going to check all this out for themselves.
1: Yeah, this is a good bit of uh, investigator work here. This is uh, this is where your Cthulhu investigators come in. They check into the hotel, but Norman is immediately suspicious about their lack of baggage. Once Norman goes back to the house, Lila and Sam snoop around. They're not in the same room, but they know which room, um, the. well, they don't know it was a murder, but they know which room Marion had, because Arbogast told them. In a good bit of spot hidden and finding a clue, they find an unflushed fragment of Marion's sums, that little bit of paper she had earlier in the adventure, if you're going to call it that, (laughs) earlier in the film, where she created this little clue, and this little handout, and then ripped it up, and a fragment doesn't get flushed in the toilet and uh, they spot the number 40,000 on it, and they're like,
2: ah. And it occurs to me this whole thing is also a great counter to the classic we call the police, because they have done that. They've got Mm. deputy chambers to investigate, and he's gone up there. He's been foiled by Norman Bates. He's come back and sort of said, oh, yeah, no, nothing to worry about. But they know that there's still something they need to do. And I think, again, from a gaming point of view that's a good way of handling it that the police when you call them don't find anything but you know there's something wrong there are you just going to let that lie?
3: Sam agrees to keep Norman busy while Lila checks the house. Lila finds the mother's bedroom but it's empty although it shows signs of occupation. There's a deep indentation in the bed. Moving on to Norman's room she finds a child's bed and toys. She picks up a book with no markings on the cover and is shocked by the contents.
1: There's a bit when she's in Norman's mother's bedroom, which is all kind of well-preserved, and, and, you know, as she would have had it. She goes over to the wardrobe and opens up the wardrobe, and there's all of his mother's dresses you know, lined up in there. And that brought back a memory to me of something else. Somebody else who very much did this, Jimmy Savile, Um oh, serial yeah. abuser in Britain. It's either in Louis Theroux's documentary about him or the um, the recent BBC documentaries about him with Steve Coogan, but he's got you know Savile has kept his mother's room just as it was, and the wardrobe has got all her dresses like hung up in plastic bags, all like sort of kept just as they were. And whilst Norman Bates and Savile, I'm not sure there's that much parallel between them. I just thought it was an interesting similarity.
2: Yeah, I guess the other similarity is uh, rumours about necrophilia. Mm. Well, yeah.
1: It's not like there's no similarities.
2: Yeah. But the child's bedroom as well, obviously all of that is very creepy. It again points to a difference between the film and the book, in that in the film... The way they present it is... Spoilers, Norman very much has two personalities. He's got this sort of boyish version, this man-child version of him, and he's got the, the mother personality. But the way Block presented it and wrote about it afterwards, there were sort of three personalities for Book Norman. And there was the, the child version of him, there was the sort of sleazy adult version of him, and then there's there's mother. About the only hint we see of that sleazy side of him apart from him spying on on marion through the peephole earlier is just this very subtle bit with lila picking up the book with nothing on the cover and reading through it because there is mentions of his pornography collection in the novel but this is just sort of i think alluding to that without actually stating anything here in the film
3: It could also, again, this is all open to interpretation, it could be that she picked up one of his books on the occult because he's reading a fairly graphic section about practices of cannibalistic tribes in one book at the very beginning of the book. So it could be that she's seen something that's, again, horrible practice about how they make certain death drums with the skin of victims being pulled taut over Mm. the instruments they create and so forth. So it it could be either. It's Because you don't see anything, it's completely open to interpretation as to what it is that she's actually looking at.
2: Maybe, but the reason I seized on pornography there was that... It's very deliberately a book with no writing on the cover, nothing to indicate what it is, which at the time that this was made would have been how pornography was distributed or pornographic books because you didn't want to advertise what was in them. So I think that's much more of the implication rather than it being that book on anthropology that was discussed in in the novel.
3: Meanwhile, Sam talks to Norman, hinting that Norman may have stolen the $40,000. When Norman intuits that Lila is searching the house, he knocks Sam out with an urn and runs back up the hill.
2: Hearing Norman arrive, Lila sneaks down to the cellar. There she comes across the form, facing away from her, of an old woman sitting in a swivel chair. She walks right up and turns the chair around. And we see, as she does, this... Mummified face, this skeletal face with mummified skin over it and these empty eye sockets. As Lila screams, Norman bursts
1: into the room, wearing a wig and a dress, wielding a large kitchen knife. Before Norman has a chance to stab Lila, however, Sam also runs into the room and subdues him.
2: And again, this is a very quick scene. Mm. Norman's final capture and subdual there is like 10 seconds.
1: Yep. A good fighting manoeuvre. Mm-hmm. Someone rolled no one
3: There we go. Yeah. We cut to the courthouse sometime later. Norman has been examined by Dr Steiner, a psychiatrist, and Steiner explains that he's learned the truth, but not from Norman. Rather, he has been speaking to Norman's mother. Out comes the Ouija board.
1: Norman Bates no longer exists, Steiner tells us. He details how Norman took on aspects of his mother's personality after her death. Norman murdered his mother out of jealousy when she took her lover, later digging up her corpse and preserving it using his taxidermy skills. So it wasn't just birds.
2: (laughs) But also what you were saying there about the Ouija board, in the book, Norman is very interested in spiritualism and there is the passing mention that i can't remember the context that he uh, at some point confronted with his reality of his mother's return or something uh, sees it as as necromancy sees her as having come back from the dead Mm
3: -hmm. yeah there's talk about that he he heard her talking in the in the coffin or something something like that Mm -hmm. yeah there's again that very delusional state where he even thinks that the corpse is her to some degree
2: As Norman's guilt grew, so did his mother's influence. He slipped more and more into her role, dressing as her and sleeping in her bed.
0: He was simply doing everything possible to keep alive the illusion of his mother being alive.
2: And when reality came too close, when danger or desire threatened that illusion, he'd dress up, even to a cheap wig he bought. He'd walk about the house, sit in her chair, speak in her voice. He tried to be his mother. And uh, now he is. His jealousy towards her became reflected in her personality as, as jealousy towards him, rising every time Norman grew close to a woman. The murders were committed by Mother's personality, and Norman thought that he was covering up her crimes.
1: As a final sting, we see Norman in his cell, his personality now completely that of the mother. We get a final internal monologue as she plans to deflect blame onto Norman, convincing the authorities that she is just a harmless old woman. She looks directly into camera and tells us she wouldn't hurt a fly.
4: It's sad when a mother has to speak the words that condemn her own son. But I couldn't allow them to believe that I would commit murder. They'll put him away now, as I should have, years ago. He was always bad. And in the end, he intended to tell them I killed those girls and that man, as if I could do anything except just sit and stare, like one of his stuffed birds. They know I can't even move a finger, and I won't. I'll just sit here and be quiet just in case they do suspect me. They're probably watching me. Well, let them, let them see what kind of a person I am. I'm not even gonna swat that fly. I hope they are watching. They'll see, they'll see and they'll know and they'll say, why she wouldn't even harm a fly.
1: I thought it was a nice touch how she kind
2: of, you know, looks directly at us at the end there. Mm -hmm. It's interesting that we get this psychiatrist sort of explaining all this at the end, because Mm. Robert Bloch wrote in his autobiography, basically, that he had no experience of psychiatry, that he didn't know any psychiatrists, and that he basically just invented all this stuff from whole cloth. But I think this, again, like the cross-dressing killer trope that we were talking about earlier, then perhaps feeds into another trope that's been perpetuated throughout the years of people with multiple personalities or dissociative identity disorder, as it is referred to now harbouring murderous personalities. I mean, we were talking about split in the uh, psychological horror episode, and it's something that has cropped up time again, quite often with the cross-dressing killer trope. From the little bits I understand about it, it's not anything like it's portrayed here, but this is the version that we now see, I think, almost exclusively, thanks to Psycho, perpetuated throughout horror fiction and throughout uh, dark thrillers. Well, that's the power of fiction, isn't it? I mean, it's not like... I I didn't watch
1: it thinking it was a documentary.
3: Do you mean this isn't how all motel operators work? (laughs) You're shattering my illusions here, man. (laughs)
1: Come on. Yeah. I can't remember if I watched this with the family some years ago we watched a few psycho films when the children were in like you know kind of late teenagers so we might have watched this one i kind of think we did otherwise it's before that it's a long time since I watched this and coming to it again i was like well i remember it being pretty good but i'm not sure how it will stand up and i gotta say i mean it was compelling all the way through and more than that it was um, like outstandingly good in terms of just the well, we talked about the sound and the visuals. I mean, all that stuff. You can sort of say that stuff about a film that's a bit crap. It can have great sound and great visuals. But, you know, it's compelling watch all the way through. I thought it stood up as a really good film throughout. Yeah. Yeah, really good performances. And I it'd be fascinating to see and there are probably accounts of this, but you know, to to watch it without knowing anything about it, or particularly, you know, being in the audience in 1960 and seeing it and not knowing because i I don't know when it would dawn on me that it's norman doing the murders i'm not sure i I doubt if i would have clocked that very quickly as we were saying as well earlier it's like to a modern audience i think the majority of people know this but i'm sure you know as as more and more people are coming up you know new generations it's going to be new to them i guess but uh, if they can avoid the spoilers
2: but it's just become such a an essential part of popular culture.
1: Yeah, it's hard to avoid. It's like the end of um, Planet of the Apes, you know.
2: And Norman Bates as a character is just a, a sort mm. of byword for all sorts of horror tropes.
1: Yeah,
2: you know, it's good when The Simpsons have parodied it.
1: Yeah, I think literally that was what my kids said at the end of perhaps Planet of the Apes. You know, that or the, a few films. They've been, like, oh yeah, we knew that was going to happen because we've seen it on The Simpsons. Yeah, and it's like a bit. I'm a bit like, yeah.
2: That is a bit of a shame. But of course, this birthed sequels, both in print and on screen. Block published Psycho 2 in 1982. I mean, before it had been published, he'd shopped it round a bit, and his agent approached Universal Studios to see if they wanted to adapt it. But they absolutely hated it and decided to make their own film, also called Psycho 2, which was based on an original screenplay by Tom Holland. Did you read the sequels, Matt?
3: No, mainly because I saw the description of Psycho 2. I mean, I've got a big three-in-one volume where I've got Psycho 2 and Psycho House in the same volume as the original Psycho. And I was reading the description at the front in the, the dust jacket cover and where it said the following... Psycho 2. Dr. Adam Claiborne thought Norman Bates was on the road to recovery until Norman killed a young nun and escaped from the asylum dressed in her habit. Now the psychiatrist and former patient are engaged in a desperate and deadly game of cat and mouse. Claiborne knows that Norman will head for Hollywood, where a movie based on the Bates Motel murders is underway. But no actor can portray Norman Bates, and Norman will see to that himself. (laughs) Ha
2: ha ha. That's not actually what the book is.
3: I read that and that was enough for me to think, hang on a minute, this is not the Psycho 2 that I remember seeing. <laughs>
2: <So>. <laughs> no, I mean, it's definitely not the film. The film's very different. The book, I'd say, is interesting, but deeply flawed. I absolutely hate the opening with Norman escaping from the, the psychiatric hospital and the whole way it's handled is not only improbable, but it's actually quite tasteless in places, without going into details, but yeah, there's some stuff in there that is creepy and not in a good way. But the majority of the book actually has nothing to do directly with Norman, and is almost a parody of Hollywood at the time, and the horror movie industry. What it reminded me of more than anything else was Scream 3, which came out like 18 years later in that they're both about horror films being based on real murders and then the the people involved with the real murders getting involved with the film adaptation. I think Scream 3 owes an awful lot to to Bloch's book. I don't think it's entirely successful, but there's, there's some fun parody in there. And similarly, his second sequel, Psycho House, is again an attempt at a form of satire in that it's you know, set a little while later and is about a businessman in Fairvale trying to turn the old Bates Motel and House into a tourist attraction. I think that's quite a clever idea. Block then uses it to a fairly by-the-numbers murder mystery, which I don't think really works. It's, it's got a nice twist and reveal at the end, but I'd say out of the three books, it's the most forgettable. Have Arthur, of you seen any of the sequel films?
3: I've seen two and four. I haven't seen three.
2: No, I don't think so. Two, I think, is actually pretty good. I mean, it, there are some parts of it that don't work, but I would like the approach they take of Norman having been released from the psychiatric hospital rehabilitated trying to reintegrate with society and then things happening no spoilers that undermine that and take him more and more back to the monster he used to be i really like that that sort of poignancy of of him trying to be a better person and everything working against him
3: it's also significantly more graphic than the first one as well Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. I remember particularly a couple of moments. They're not really spoilers, but one that involved a trowel being rammed down someone's throat or rammed into their mouth, and then the quite grisly discovery of the body afterwards. And then the out of the blue coal uh, shovel that uh, happens. <laughs> yes. Yeah, that was a kind of whoa. Did not, did not expect that to happen right then. So, yeah, there's, it's very graphic in parts
2: psycho 3 i'd say is the weakest out of the bunch it's got some reasonable moments and it's got some fun characters but it's sleazy it's nasty it's it's quite weird quite a horny film in a lot of ways and yeah i don't think it really quite comes together psycho 4 i thought was a real missed opportunity it had some great stuff in there the centre of it is this phone-in radio show where they're talking about children who have killed their mothers, and Norman Bates, having been released from hospital, it, it ignores the previous two sequels, having been released from hospital and trying to make a new life for himself again, phones in and starts giving his side of the story. And there's a real heart to that, and a real. it's a really good hook, uh, which I think, falls apart completely in the end the ending of it is just fucking awful (laughs) (laughs) a
3: bit lackluster to say the least but yeah that's that's the one that's mostly the flashbacks isn't it where it goes back to the events leading up to him killing his mother
2: there's also bates motel both the tv movie from 1987 and then the tv series from when was it 2013 did either of you ever see uh, the the TV program?
3: No, neither. No.
2: I watched the first couple of episodes of it and couldn't get into it, but I keep hearing good things about it, so I, I must go back and give it another try. But it's a, a sort of prequel to Psycho, with uh, teenage Norman Bates and his mother starting the motel.
0: Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.
2: You're listening to the Good Friends of Jackson Elias. You can find show notes for this episode at BlasmusTomes.com, where you will also find links to all our social media presences. We have t-shirts and other merchandise available at our Redbubble store. And if you're enjoying the show, please consider backing us at patreon.com slash Elias. We offer a variety of interesting rewards to our backers, so please do check that out. Thank you for listening. It is that time once again when we would like to say thank you to people. Thank you, first of all, to you for listening to this podcast. Thank you very much to anyone who has ever backed us at any stage. And we have a number of new backers to thank by name. Thanks to Austin
3: Owens. And this is almost a topical entry here in the list. Thank you to Mother of Eldridge.
2: And thank you very much to Eleanor Kershaw.
3: And thank you to Isabel Cooper thank you very much also to David Burke.
2: Aha, and a familiar name here, thank you very much to Boyd LaCroix.
1: And thanks to Mickey. <laughs> I like this, I like these names.
3: <laughs> and also, thank you very much to Filthy Monkey, you bad monkey.
2: And as ever, if you are enjoying The Good Friends of Jackson Elias, we would love it if you let people know whether this means leaving a review somewhere where reviews might be found or simply writing about it on a bit of paper and bundling it up in a newspaper and leaving it on your motel nightstand where people might find it or, or not find it or just drop it into a swamp. We're not fast
1: okay well that wraps up our discussion of psycho you've been listening to the good friends of jackson Elias. until next time it's a goodbye from me and cheerio from me and a farewell from me
2: hello blasphemous
0: I might go and have a shower now.